You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has me. Hi, I'm here with you, Tukolikowski. And we start off tonight dedicating to Harry Belafonte, who passed away recently. Harry lived to be quite uh, an old man. He, he lived to be 96 years old. Uh, most people, of course, know Harry Belafonte for his records that he made. They were very popular in the late 50s and 60s. But, of course, he had his own production company. Those of you who listen to The Projectionist know that we actually highlighted uh, during Black History Month last year, Odds Against Tomorrow, which was a film that was part of his production company that he starred with Robert Ryan and Ed Begley, which I think if you want to see a film that really is relevant for race relations today and sketching what is, is happening in the world. I think the film is still relevant. Yitzchok has seen recently the film The World of Flesh and the Devil, based uh, on a passage in Revelations, which is sort of a, uh, I wouldn't call, I don't know if it's a genre of end of the world films on the beach and other films like that, imagining what the world would be after a nuclear holocaust. But this is one of those films made in 1959. Uh, again, on the beaches, they knew that they were basically facing the end of the world. And it's really about how human beings ready themselves for death. It happens to be that people were worried about the imminent death and the destruction of the planet. But it really is about what happens with people and when they realize that there's nothing, that this is the last day of their lives. I think that's what On the Beach is, the drama of On the Beach is. Here, in this film, the question is imagining what the world might be after the apocalypse, and there might be some survivors. In this case, as Yitzhak tells me beforehand, there's only three people in the whole film. Yeah. And that is, um, right, Yitzhak, you have Harry Belafonte, who is a, uh, he works uh, as a miner, and therefore he's underground when the this nuclear explosion occurs. And when he ascends upward, uh, he discovers that he thinks perhaps he's alone, but he ends up, of course, on his travels, uh, discovering another person. The the premise of the story is that it, that whatever this kind of powder or something that just killed off everybody, after five days, the effects wear off. And since he was stuck underground 
for five days. That's how he survived. So he climbs his way out. He's trying, you know, there was some kind of a, an explosion and he, he doesn't know what caused it. He didn't know what was going on. He's there under the coal mine somewhere in Pennsylvania. And he manages to release himself, dig his way out five days later. And he hops up out. And, and you know, since it's Harry Belafonte, he starts to sing a little bit while he's stuck in the in the cave. Finally, he gets up and he looks around. There's nobody around. And he hears some news reports, recordings, things that find some newspapers explaining what, what happened. The world world came to an end. He steals a car. There are no dead bodies around. There's nothing grotesque. It's just very quiet and still. But once he got to the city, all of the bridges and all the entrances to the city are all filled with empty cars. And he's just trying to uh, figure out what exactly to, that he's, he's going to, how he's going to get into the city. He, he has this goal of entering the city. And once he gets into the city, he figures all the resources, whatever he could, could need to survive will all be there. Plus, whatever he's trying to preserve, he seems to have a big idea that he, he's going to save all the books because the library is falling apart. And he's just going to. So, how does he get into the city? It's like if everything is blocked off. Well, he can't drive into the city. He has to walk into. In, in, oh, he's able to walk into. The, he's able to cross the bridge. He's able to walk well, into. He can't just drive. He just he just can't drive because all the because the bridges are are filled with empty cars. But he can walk. So the, before we get to the to, to the plot, do you think that the this obviously was a certain money saving device on behalf of the production crew because you know if they have to put in a bunch of you know crash dummies or whatever it is to indicate the the dead bodies that would of course would have ramped up the cost of producing this film did they was there any sort of exposition that explained why there are no bodies not that i can remember i, I wasn't thinking that much attention i was no, it's basically to... it's basically sort of like a fable like you know everybody just disappeared yeah, it... I mean the way the way I see it almost it's it would work very well as a stage play because you only have three actors. Uh it would be very easy to produce a stage play, but on film they do they have these beautiful wide shots and you know it's it's uh, very carefully choreographed, you know, to of how it's supposed to look, but it, it it's it's definitely playing itself as more of a prestige piece. It's not it's not playing as a, a cheap B movie. It's not Roger Corman. You know, it's it's a uh, it's it's supposed to be a very serious movie, and I think that's kind of what to me. As much as I enjoyed it, I feel that the film took itself a little bit too seriously. He's trying to get the attention to see if anybody survived, and so he starts shooting off guns and he starts ringing uh, church bells and whatever he can do to get people's attention. And there's the one scene where he's ringing the church bell and they show different shots throughout New York City of statues of lions, you know, how they have at the at the library in different places throughout the city. And so it's like each time he rings the bell, the shot changes and it almost looks like the lions are being animated slightly. And they actually use that in the trailer to the film, that scene. Uh, you know of how how powerful of an image that looks. I don't know what the statement is with the lion in particular. And Odds Against Tomorrow, the film that I was talking about, which was also uh, Harry Belafonte's film about, I think, similar issues, which is you know the inability of human beings to live together and work together. Odds Against Tomorrow ends with an apocalyptic destruction of uh, of, of of a giant gas tank where the white guy and the black guy face off against each other. Here in this film, 
you know, again, let me just spoil it for everybody. Uh, eventually, the idea of despite the fact that there seems to be only three people left in the world, that somehow we still bring even into a new world the same issues, the same prejudices and the same hatreds, because, you know, a, a very attractive woman has also survived. Inger Stevens has yeah, also so he, survived. He, 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 the way, she, you know, she, you see about a half hour into the movie, she's following him. And one of the things he's trying to do just to keep sane is he takes two mannequins and brings them into into his apartment. He has a nice apartment. He, he's always well-dressed. He always shaves and, and cuts his hair and puts on a nice suit and tie. He's not looking he's like taken, basically he's taken over somebody i mean he as we say there is no stealing nobody owns anything belafonte this black fellow is trying to represent civility i don't know if there's any yeah, other I, humans left in the world but i refuse to become an animal i'm still going to bring into this world that i don't know if there's any other people i'm still bringing in the morals and the ideals of the of the world that spawned me and, and in a certain sense i think that's what's hinted to in the title that the the world, the flesh, and the devil are these three characters. He, you know, he's the world, and uh, the, and Inger the Stevens, this beautiful woman, is the flesh the that flesh. might rip. That when Harry Belafonte discovers her, so is there uh, uh, an interracial romance, or is the film scared to even go there? Well, it's it it it, it plays around that fear, and what what happens is at one point he gets angry at one of them. He has a male and a female mannequin. He gets angry at the male mannequin, throws out the window. And when this woman Sarah, played by Inger Stevens, sees the mannequin, she thinks that it's that it's uh, Ralph Harry Belafonte's character committed suicide, and she runs to to save him. And it turns out that it's not him. So now the jig is up. You know that that now he knows that she exists. And the first thing that she says is, "Don't touch me." You know that's that, and and he gets very angry. He's like, "You know that's the first thing that you say when we meet you meet another human being is, don't touch me.'" And you know, you think you think I'm crazy. Of course, I'm crazy. You know, the whole world's crazy. So they, you know, they decide they know that they need each other. But the, he really sets it up of saying, you know, you're going to have your own apartment. I'm going to help you have everything you need. He sets up the telephone. And he sets up the radio, and he's trying to make. Uh, how could that, well, telephone and radio? Yes, I don't. I don't get it. If they are the only three human beings, who's broadcasting? What purpose could there be for a telephone and a radio? The telephone is so they can communicate between the two of them. And the of radio, course, of, course, of course, that's already illogical because the telephone it's dependent on somebody manning uh, the lines in order to to keep things going. Figured he figured out how to set up the lines. You know, he's very resourceful. And the radio, he decided he's going to every day at noon make a broadcast and try to see if there's anyone else in the world. And it seems that he he found there are people somewhere in in Europe and somewhere in South America. He gets some some French language, you know, answers here and there. And so they realize they're not the last people on Earth, but they're certainly among the the very few that are left in the world. And and, and does the film ever explain why? We know why uh, Ralph saved because he's underground does the film explain why she is alive no, no. okay never explains that okay no and she and she appears the, the film is about 90 minutes long she appears about a half hour in and it's so for that the you know the first half hour it's only ralph then it's ralph and sarah for the next half hour and then a, a ship a, arrives a boat arrives and there's a, a man ben played by mel ferrer who shows up and and one of the things that before mel ferrer shows up that 
Ralph, played by Harry Belafonte, says is that, you know, I'm the mayor of New York City and I'm going to fit. And when we find another man, I'm going to officiate at your wedding. Uh, he tells Sarah, uh-huh. you know, meaning that he's making it clear that there's nothing between the two of them, but he would approve of whoever she could find. But she falls in love with him and she falls in love with both of the men and she doesn't know who to pick. And they're kind of all kind of making this decision for her. Uh, once the three of them are are, are all together, and she, and her biggest upset is why isn't anybody asking me what I want instead of, you know, bossing me around and de- making these decisions for me? But she also feels that she can't decide because she she's attracted to both of them. She even feels love for both of them. But the difference is, Harry Belafonte won't make any move, and uh, and Mel Ferrer won't leave her alone. And so, uh, and so she's kind of disgusted by both of them, but also attracted to both of them. And so, is there any is there any indicator from the Ferrer character that it's improper, even in this new world, for a black and a white person to be involved as as, as sexually? It, it's somewhat hinted to, but there there's earlier on. I mean, like he says, I have no problem with Negroes and this and that. But earlier, before Mel Ferrer appears, Inger Stevens says. I'm free, white, and 21. You know, I can do what I, the world belongs to me. I can do whatever I want. And then uh, you, you know that that's foreshadowing something. And, and a few minutes later, Harry Belafonte says, you know, that you, you think that's just a, a saying that you've heard a thousand times, but those are daggers through my heart, you know, because I am colored. Or, or if you want to say I'm, I'm a Negro, or then he uses other words. If He says, if you're not polite, and he uses other words that we could get in trouble if we repeat what he said. And she says, well, I'm none of those things. And he said, well, you said, but you said that statement and you didn't realize, you know, the, the, the feelings so, that you had. So it sounds like Belafonte, who was uh, one of the producers, although he doesn't appear on screen as the producer, but as the IMDb people have discovered, it was, he was somehow behind the production of this film. Uh, Belafonte was obviously trying to make uh, a number of points in a very uh, combustible racial atmosphere that was occurring in the end of the 50s and the early 60s right otherwise that dialogue really isn't relevant he obviously is it isn't really for that for the plot device i think what he right it sounds like the film was was a message film about uh, getting along today and understanding about the humanity that we all share there was a message here but the message you think got garbled in the end and of course as a science fiction film it doesn't work either really does it right right you know, I mean, forget about the lack of special effects, even yeah. even in terms, I mean, it, the day the Earth stood still and other films uh, that were, you know, in, in that decade, you know, we understand what the message is and we somehow got it. Uh, even the monster films in, in many ways are somehow a comment on on where we're going. It wasn't really like Strangelove or anything about the fact that we're in a nuclear war mentality. It, it really, you know, like you say, is a... It's using the nuclear war possibility in this as a way to sort of make points about the human condition. In the end, the Mel Ferrer gets so frustrated with Harry Belafonte, he figures he just has to get rid of him just so he can have a chance. Because though uh, at one point this Sarah throws herself at him, but then she she runs away seconds later and realizes that's not what she wants. And so now they're trying to, you know, they're trying to figure out who who's going to get her. And and again, nobody's asking her. 
And Ben just figures, well, if I kill Belafonte, you know, Mel Ferrer figures then then he's out of the picture. So then who else is going to have her? Again, one can make the point, you know, in a world like Beratius, a world that aren't any human beings, you could either, uh, in a certain way, uh, say that the the cost of a human life is exponentially a million times greater because there are so there's so few humans, or you could actually say the opposite that the rules that govern society don't apply at all. And that and that and that's something that they're they're examining because on one hand, you know, he's saying nobody's the Mel Ferrer is saying nobody's going to stop me if I kill or rape. It's there's nothing going to stop me. But on the other hand. He makes a statement that this is World War Four. You know, we, they just they just experienced World War Three, and now, and now, you know, just these two men being essentially, you know, probably uh, among the last in the world, certainly the last that they have any, you know, close contact with, except for some distant radio broadcasts uh, in other countries. Uh, these are the last men on Earth. So this is World War Four, and and he says. You know, you take a gun and we're going to we're going to fight this out and let the best man win. Right. And and when you get to that point, the ideas of uh, liberation or women's equality really are irrelevant. We know that uh, a woman's biological situation, that she will produce children and whatever her beauty goes is really not really relevant. It just sweetens the deal. And therefore, you have this standoff between Belafonte and Ferrer about who will win, who will get the prize, which is, of course, the right to continue their seed to have more to, to to have more people come from them and that's really what all wars are about again it sounds like an episode of the twilight zone which of course twilight zone right. did something similar it would probably work better in a half hour in the twilight zone you know it's it, it doesn't overstay its welcome but it's one of these things that you know especially trying you know as, as much as as rod serling was always trying to make some kind of a message and everything this this was his type of a genre where it was it wasn't the point wasn't the monsters or the or the nuclear war or anything but rather the message that you know how it makes you think and but so what happens if i i don't mind spoiling it i you know if someone doesn't want to listen they can cover their ears for the spoilers so what, what he winds up doing is he passes by the un building and he reads you know the the posik you know the nation shall not Lift up sword against nation, you know they'll turn their 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 swords into the plowshares and, and the pruning hooks, and they won't learn of war anymore. And so he throws his gun away. And so Mel Ferrer is about to kill Harry Balafonte, and he just he's ready to he's ready to die. And Mel Ferrer is so disgusted by that, he said, you know, if you would have fought back, I would have killed you. But the fact that you just don't care enough, I I I can't do it. So then. Uh, Iger Stevens runs after Harry Belafonte. And finally, you know, this is the first time they even touch, they even hold hands at all, as opposed to with Mel Ferrer. She, she kisses him and, and holds him, but then pushes back. But when it comes here, she, she grabs his hand and they're walking, holding hands. And then what I think is the most absurd part of the movie is the very ending. Then she goes and holds Mel Ferrer's hand and the three of them, she's in the middle and the three of them are holding hands walking <laughs> into the, walking into the, 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 to, toward the horizon. And it says, instead of the beginning, it just, it, instead of the end, it says the beginning. And, and uh-huh. you know, what does that, what does that entail? You know, biologically, obviously 
I mean, I guess they'll they'll be able to know whose child is whose if 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 that's where it goes. <laughs> yeah. In other words, are, are they basically just going to have free love or not? Is that what the film is implying, or is the film implying that clearly Belafonte represents a better catch because he is he's not aggressive, he's not violent, he's worried about creating a good home, he's kind, and of course that's what women want in order to nurture them. And he's worried about keeping society, keeping the history alive, saving all the books, saving all the right. the, the artifacts. So it's at some point in the future, people will remember what was, and not everything should be lost to to the to the dustbin of history. So it's, it's maybe a, the point is Ferrer will obviously, if again, it sounds unrealistic because if Ferrer represents libido or Ferrer represents you know the the violent aspect of man or perhaps. Yeah, or the devil. So he's not just going to let Belafonte and Inger Stevens just live together. There's going. It sounds like you know that this is not a recipe for success. But I see that it's based on a novel called The Purple Cloud by MP by MP Shio, which again yeah. in those days there was no uh, nuclear weapon. So, but there was still imagination that some cloud could come and make everybody disappear. Yeah, they they had the idea of making the film as early as 1940. Mm-hmm. But then they kept pushing it off, and, it was, and it, until it became more realistic. And then we have the, the racial and the nuclear war aspects of things. The controls on YouTube allow you to watch the film at a very quicker speed, so I'm sure you were able to do that. So you didn't have to. Spend- I, I, watch, I watch it at regular speed. Is that was, so? Wow, I'm surprised. Yeah, I watch it at regular speed, but I, I, I couldn't hear it so well, uh, and so I and I was I was on my way out out to uh, Pittsburgh while I was watching it. So I okay. I hope Pittsburgh. I hope Pittsburgh was still there when you got there. Yeah, it obviously couldn't have been made today. I think today there there wouldn't have. First of all, there wouldn't have been any sort of hesitations between Belafonte's character and Inger Stevens' character. Even the intimation that somehow because you know he's black and she's white, they can't be together. That that already you now would be considered so racially incorrect, anachronistic, and ugly, and part of a xenophobic, terrible past that. You know, you know, I'm sure if the film was being viewed, it would have to be explained, you know, as a as a relic of a, a time that thank God we've left behind. But again, you know, I think that uh you know that's part of what we do by discovering old films is by going back to those times and seeing what those messages are. So Harry Belfonte, uh we know that uh that you are a person who did work for racial peace and justice. He had a strong Love for the Jewish people. Yes. And, and I think, you know, he was a very beloved performer. I don't think he, you know, had the same sort of screen presence as Sidney Poitier. Uh, they were very good friends, of course. Uh, and many people saw them as sort of the yin and the yang, you know, the black performers at that time. I think both of them were able in a way to be crossover performers. No one, no one forgot that they were black, but I think they were able in their performances. Uh, to be able to hold the screen with a certain presence. And they were, of course, well-known throughout. I think that in, in those ways, you know, people who in later years, revisionists who look at them as not doing enough, not standing up enough, as not protesting enough, don't realize what they were doing. He was he was a, a big uh, civil rights activist, though. That's right, right. But again, but he did it in a way that was more like Martin Luther King than Malcolm X. He was someone who didn't give an inch in terms of what what he wanted for the black people but also at the same time he realized his popularity with white audiences and white performers and he wasn't necessarily going to alienate them but he wanted to, to somehow you know send subtle messages 
how much those messages worked and how much obviously the film, as you say, is not necessarily, and neither is Odds Against Tomorrow. I think both of those films that, that Belafonte made were in a way admirable attempts. But uh, I, I think if, if one would talk about the black actor who actually pushed the envelope further in terms of acceptance of blacks as equal citizens in the United States in all ways, I would say probably is Portier in terms of the, the whole gamut of his performances, especially uh, during that period, whether it's Lilies in the Field or Apache Blue in the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner to Serve with Love. All of those really, again, Portier seems to have uh, had the vehicles uh, that pushed that engine much more than Belafonte did. But both of them, you know, dying one year after the other, they're really both very, very great performers, uh, people who did in terms of their idealism, in terms of always taking the high ground. They never, they never went low, and they never really involved in what we would call the type of scandals that have unfortunately have plagued so many people who, who went out there, Cosby and others like that. Paul Robeson, who, you know, had the political scandals. And Paul Robeson, of course, was tainted by you know, his connections to the communist world, which, of course, was really true by so many other performers who saw the glitter and appeal of what, uh, you know, Marxist communist vision as as a panacea and as perhaps something that could save the world. Uh, many people had to do mea culpas and cover stuff up after the war when, you know, the House on Americans Committee went and investigated every single thing. But you know, I would say in terms of other types of personal life scandals, uh, that, that Paul Robeson really is a very much of a, tra- yeah, a, a, yeah, it's really a tragic figure. Dorothy Dandridge, Paul Robeson, again, you know, Mahalia Jackson, of course, and others, Hattie McDaniel. These are all, in a way, stalwart. Canada Lee and other performers, obviously. Robeson, uh, Robeson was another one who loved Jews very much and was very, he spoke Yiddish fluently in the. Right. And as as we know, you know, I think on many of the the issues that uh, these people were working for have, you know, thank God in time, in many ways receded to the past, to the point that it is something to look at to know where we've been. And it's something to note that these were men who were there at the center. So that's about it, my friends. We'll catch you next time. Watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you later. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.